I enjoy watching a lot of mobster and gangster movies because there's something about the camaraderie amongst the guys, you know? However, I'm not gonna lie, I enjoy watching romantic comedies too. And one of my favorites from back in the 90s is Addicted to Love. And in case you've never watched this movie before, it's about two heartbroken people who team up because their exes left them for each other. And so for the rest of the movie, they're trying their best to tear them apart. Now in the beginning of the movie, I remember rooting for the two heartbroken people. But as the movie progressed, I found it cute that not only did the two sabotages end up getting together, but all through the hardships and the different disruptions, the two exes remained together. And if anything, the difficulties helped them appreciate their love for each other that much more. And the reason I share this is as we continue in our study of Genesis, you know, most people only consider Joseph and say it's only about him here. But the truth is, just as we saw last week, because we need to look at these chapters together, the truth is this section is about Joseph's family as a whole. And what we need to see today is that Joseph's brothers, they're in a really dark place, in a really bad place spiritually. And so like the movie Addicted to Love, God uses various trials and various things to draw their hearts back towards him. And if we look at our passage carefully, there's at least three ways we need to see how God brings about gospel revival in the hearts of people. The first way, many times God will use solitude. The second way, many times God will use various circumstances that are out of our hands. And lastly, to draw our hearts back to him, the number one way that God always uses is revealing his grace and his love. And so first, to learn about God bringing gospel revivals to the hearts of men, we need to see sometimes that God will use a time of solitude. You know, when I think back on my high school days, I can't help but think of really fond memories where my friends and I had a blast in youth group. We played sports together. We went out to eat all the time. We even went partying together. But one thing that I experienced that the other guys didn't was that in my last year of high school, I was all alone because out of the four of us, I was actually the youngest. And so when they all graduated and they all went off to college, in the beginning, I went to visit them, right? I went to NYU and I went to these parties and stuff like that, but it became tiring. And so after a little bit, I ended up staying in for the most of the weekends uh, of my last year in high school. And at first I was like, this stinks. I'm a senior. I should be living my best life. But all my friends moved on and I was all alone. However, you know what? In my time alone, I've never read the Bible more than I did in that one year of my life. 
I was elected president of my youth group, and I spent many Saturday nights picking up and dropping off youth students um, for my youth group to make sure they would come and make sure that they would have a ride back from all the youth events. And so in hindsight, as much as I hated that all my friends left for college and I felt all alone, it's crazy how God used that time of solitude for my good and for my spiritual growth. And I share this because when God seeks to bring gospel revival to his people, many times he will bring it about with solitude. And we can really see this truth all over the Bible. But as I mentioned, since we need to look at these chapters together, if we go back one chapter to last week's uh, chapter 42, where the brothers are thrown into prison, you can really see how a time of solitude helped change their hearts and perspective on life. Now you might be thinking, Pastor Tom, really? Prison though? Why would God ever send good people to prison just to teach them a lesson? Well, first of all, we need to remember Joseph's brothers were not in a very good place. They were not very nice people. In the past, in Genesis chapter 34, Simeon and Levi, they kill all the men in one village because they wanted to get revenge for their sister. In chapter 35, Reuben disrespects and disgraces the whole family by sleeping with his father's concubine. In chapter 37, we obviously saw the brothers sell their own brother Joseph and had, they had him shipped to a different country. And in chapter 38, Judah sleeps with his daughter-in-law thinking that she was a prostitute. It's crazy, isn't it? Who said that the Bible was boring? And it's only after these men with super hard hearts. And actually, commentators note that at this point, many think that they weren't even believers. After spending three days in prison, in solitude, it helped soften their hearts. And we know this because remember, when they threw Joseph into the pit, right after, it didn't bother them at all. And scripture tells them they went to go eat. But when you get out of prison, it wasn't like, whew, we got through this, man. Let's go grab a burger. No, instead, their attitude was they were convicted by sin. It softened their hearts to remember the image of Joseph's face and the things that he may have been saying and pleading. And at the end, after being in solitude, they realized there really must be a God. And this is important for us to see because as much as we hate being in solitude, many times it's God's grace to us because he wants us to draw our hearts towards him. And we kind of know this already, don't we? That solitude will do this for us. That's why we go on retreats from time to time. That's why we go on vacations. That's why sometimes we just need to get outside and go for a walk. Because when we unplug and get away from the world, away from all the busyness, away from work, 
away from trying to keep up with the Joneses. It's in solitude that God often meets us, does he not? And so friends, I encourage you during this time of pandemic, don't be so caught up with asking God, how long, God, how long? But instead to ask God during this time of quarantine, what is it, God, that you want me to learn? How are you trying to draw me closer to you? What are you trying to give me perspective on in order to find gospel revival in my heart? Second, to learn about bringing a gospel revival to us, we need to see that God uses circumstances. And a lot of times, circumstances that are out of our hands. You know, when I first started dating Tay, it's kind of a funny story. Her first Sunday at this one church in Queens was my first Sunday too. And so they put all the newcomers in this one room and it was this awkward silence as we were waiting for uh, the pastor to come. And of course, Tay's the one that says, so where's everyone from, right? And in my head, I was like, who is this weird girl? But I left that day and it didn't matter because I was living in New Jersey. And to go to Queens for church was way too far. But the next time I would see her would be at a mutual friend Super Bowl party. And because I'm super introverted and I barely knew anyone there, I tried to sneak out without anyone noticing. And that's when she kind of popped her head out the door and said, Goodbye! You know? And I was like, bye, you weirdo. <laughs> I'm definitely not, never coming back again. I'll never see you. But somehow, God would have us providentially meet again. I was interviewing with Morgan Stanley in New York City. And after failing two interviews for two different positions, for some reason, this HR lady must have liked me or something because she set me up with a third interview. And for a third position at an office that was right next to Tay's. And so we agreed to meet for a casual lunch. And she brings me to this deli. I get my food. I get to the front of the line and the cashier tells me, your debit card is no good. It's cash only here. At that point, my jaw dropped and I didn't know what to do. But because there's this huge line, if you can imagine lunchtime in New York, I had no choice but to shamefully ask Tay, like, uh, can I borrow some money? Is that okay? Well, thankfully, the pseudo date went well. And I was able to convince Tay on the second date, saying, well, since I owe you, let me buy you dinner. And the rest was history, right? Just like I planned. Now, at the time when I was going through everything, it felt horrible. I couldn't find a solid church that I had to go all the way to New York to try to find a church. Coming out of college, I nailed half a dozen interviews and I got all these offers, but why couldn't I land these Morgan interviews? And really, cash only? All of Jersey accepts debit cards. Why not this New York deli? It was so embarrassing. But of course, in hindsight, it's amazing how God orchestrated everything out of all of the churches to go to the same one in Queens. 
to fail my interview after interview and end up where things work. And to eat lunch at a cash only place when I have no cash. When I think about the situation, I'm still amazed about how God used all these circumstances to lead me to my future wife. And we know many times this is how God works. Because if you look at chapter 42, although God already started moving in the brothers' hearts through solitude, they really only confessed their sins to each other. But if you look at the beginning of chapter 43, God continued to seek revival in the brothers. Because if you look at verse 1 and 2, with the famine getting worse and worse, it was really forcing their hand to do something. Now for most of us, as Americans, we probably can't relate to the distress of going through a famine. Since most of us, our cupboards are filled with food, our freezers are filled with food, and just waiting for us, and sometimes rotting away since uh, we have just too much food. But as we're reading our text while going through a pandemic, I can see how these two crises are actually pretty similar in that both disasters, both circumstances are out of our hands. Both circumstances are frightening and they can take the lives of people around us. A second way God used circumstances that were out of the hands of the brothers is that if you look at verses 3 to 7, Joseph basically demands you better not come back here and don't expect more food unless you bring back Benjamin. And Jacob responds to the boys in verse 6, It's all your fault. Why did you tell the prime minister you had another brother? And Judah basically answers, How could we know that the situation was going to play out the way it did? He asked the question, we answered, and now we're in this situation that's completely out of our hands. Brothers and sisters, as upsetting as the situation may have seen for Jacob and the sons, they're stuck in this dang famine that won't go away. Jacob and the brothers, they feel like they're getting bullied and they have no choice in the matter but to do whatever the prime minister asks. They can't change his heart or convince him otherwise. The good news is even though they don't know it, God is using these uncontrollable circumstances to revive their hearts. Because if you remember, it was Judah out of all the brothers back in chapter 37. He was the one that suggested to sell Joseph. But after experiencing these uncontrollable circumstances, his heart is being transformed like Jesus. And that's why in verses 8 and 9 of our chapter, Judah is now willing to sacrifice himself for his brother. It's Jacob. If you go all the way back to chapter 25, he was always the insecure son. He was the one who had to deceive his father. Like, ironically, his children were deceiving him about Joseph. It's Jacob who stole his brother's blessings. And in the last chapter, he was like, no way. I'll never let Benjamin go down with you guys. And yet, after being in these uncontrollable circumstances, his heart was being revived too. 
Because in verses 11 to 14, Jacob is now willing to trust and to submit and to lean on God's mercy. And this is important for us to see because as much as we may hate being in solitude, don't we hate it even more when we're stuck in a circumstance that's out of our hands? It stinks being in a famine. It stinks being in a pandemic. It stinks that schools are closed and graduations aren't the same. It stinks that our daycare is closed, the people that we rely on to help care for our children. It stinks that we are, some of us are jobless, that some of us that we're in jobs that we hate. However, friends, isn't it also true that when we feel like we're in control, that's when we most forget about God. We forget about loving Him. We forget about living for Him. But when circumstances are out of our hands, then we're reminded it's God who's sovereign. Sovereign over everything, including famines or pandemics. It's God who can control and transform people's hearts. We can't convince people otherwise, but God can. He changes the Pharaoh's heart. He controls Joseph's heart. He controls anyone's heart that we feel like we're being bullied by. Therefore, brothers and sisters, when we face situations that we can't control, don't be discouraged. Because God knows the situation that we're going through. And many times he's using it to revive our hearts. Lastly, to learn about God bringing gospel revival, we need to see the number one way that he draws our hearts back to him is by showing his grace and his love. Going back to the movie Addicted to Love, again, the premise of the movie is that it's based on two heartbroken people who are trying to break up their exes from staying together. But where this team differs, right? is that Meg Ryan simply wants to see her ex suffer. But for Matthew Broderick, he plays the scientist, and his goal is to track and to graph the couple's actions, like the times they feed each other, the times they kiss each other, the times they smile at each other, what type of smile they have, and the times they fight, shout, and give each other long looks. And Matthew Broderick is convinced that he knows and he can calculate when they will break up. And when they do, he will be waiting for them and she will come running back to him. And when he reveals his master plan to Meg Ryan, he's all excited, waiting for a sort of affirmation from his partner in crime. And what she tells him is, you know what, that is without a doubt the most pathetic thing I've ever heard. Because Meg Ryan knows, even if they're unethical and nasty tricks break up their exes and she comes running back to him, what good is it if it's not a really sincere and genuine relationship? Meg Ryan knows better. People can't be coerced into a good and healthy relationship. Now at the end, it must be driven by a real and deep love for one another. 
And that's why although to wake up the brothers and to draw their hearts back towards him, sometimes God will use solitude. And sometimes God will use various circumstances. But the one thing God always uses is revealing his grace and love for his people. And although the brothers probably didn't notice or maybe they just couldn't accept it and couldn't believe that anyone would show this type of grace or love. But God has been pouring down his affections on them the whole time. First, in response to the brother selling off Joseph, he could have, he should have punished them. But instead, he showed them grace by using their sin to save them, actually. Second, when they went shopping for the very first time, they brought all of this money. But God basically said, you know what? No good here, right? Just like me at the deli, no good. And he returned everything. However, when they saw it, they're like, oh my gosh, we're in big trouble. They couldn't believe that anyone would be so generous and so gracious who would return all the money back? It must be a mistake. It must be an oversight. And third, if you look at the second half of our chapter, we didn't get to read the whole passage. But it's really here that God displays and pours down his love. Out of all the people in line for food, people are dying of starvation at this time. And yet they are chosen. They are invited to come up and if you can imagine the nicest hotel, right, at Turks and Caicos or wherever, they're invited to come up to rest and wash up, feed your donkeys, join in this massive feast at the king's table. But again, they get scared. Why would anyone do this out of the goodness of their heart? There must be something that's up, right? There's something that's wrong. And at that moment, as they're thinking about that, Simeon is brought out. The brothers are reunited. Simeon was held back and everyone was let go, but he was held back. Can you imagine the joy that they must have felt when they were reunited? The Pharaoh could have abused him. He could have sold him just like they sold Joseph. But by God's grace, he was returned safe and sound. And the greatest display of God's affection comes at the end. Because more than gifts and food, as busy as he is, Joseph himself comes into the room and he just shows his love and affection by directly asking them, how are you guys? How's your father? And the climax is when Joseph spots his younger brother. And the Bible tells us that through Joseph, God has just been doting and loving on the brothers. But the thing is, he's almost been holding it in, never revealing his cards until he spots Benjamin. And at that point, he's like, you know what? I can't. I just can't anymore. Joseph runs into the other room because he doesn't want his brothers to cease. And he just starts bawling and just starts weeping because of the overwhelming love he has for his family. Friends, this is the most important thing we need to see and to take away from our passage. 
Because this is the heart of the gospel. This is how God really works to revive our hearts back to him. What does the most familiar verse in the Bible tell us in John 3.16? How does he save us? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God so loved us. However, it's probably not the type of love you and I are thinking about. When you and I think about love, a great and deep love, we probably think about our love for our spouses, this romantic love, right? Or maybe our love for our kids, that we would do anything for them. Or maybe perhaps our love for our friends, right? If you're in a gang or a mob, you know, right? That you will die for them, right? It's ride or die. But this is not the type of love that we're reading here. Our type of love, of course, people would sacrifice for our families, our friends. But the type of love that's written in John 3, 16, God so loved the world that this love, this agape, is the same word described in Romans 5, where it says, for a while, we were still weak. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. This is God's type of love. Again, maybe some of us, gangs, mobs, we will die for our friends and our family. But how many of us will be willing to die for our enemies, our traitors, our backstabbers? And yet, that's agape love. That's the love that Joseph displayed to his double-crossing brothers. That's the agape love Jesus displays for us on the cross. And I tell you guys, if you could just scratch the surface of that agape love, the highest form, the fullest display of love that you can ever find, you can be sure to find gospel revival in your heart. And so if you're a Christian this morning, it's incredible how providential and timely God's messages are, isn't it? Chris when he chose the sermon series on Joseph, he had no idea we would be in a pandemic. And as I've been meditating on chapter 42 and 43 together, who knew we would be looking at passages where brothers are stuck in solitude and in a famine? But here we are, also stuck in the solitude of our homes, in our own crisis too. And so some questions we need to be asking ourselves is how does God want us to grow in this time of solitude? What doors are God opening? What doors are God closing during this crisis that are out of our hands? And lastly, if you look at Romans 5 again, verse 8 says, God shows his love for us while we were still sinners. God shows his love. Now, when most people read this verse, 
they read this one word shows. Most people mistakenly read it in the past tense, but it's not. Because if you look at this word in the original language, to show or demonstrate is obviously a verb, right? And if you further parse it, it's in the third person singular form because it's God displaying his love. But the key thing to see here is also it's in the present tense and active voice. Meaning, as God showed his great love on that day when Jesus died on the cross, that great agape love that one day, God is still continuing to show the same great agape love every day. And that's why we need to spend time with him regularly. Not to earn his favor, not to earn our salvation, but in order that his agape love would revive our hearts and keep our hearts to be alive and well. Now, if you're joining us this morning, but you're not a believer, perhaps you can relate to Reuben and Judah and Simeon and the rest of the sons of Jacob who sinned against their brother, who refused to say, I am not going to bow down to you. And maybe God is using this time of solitude for you to ask yourself, what is the purpose of everything? Or maybe God is using circumstances that are out of your hands and you're listening to this message where before you have never stepped inside a church. But one thing I know for sure is, if you're not a Christian, like the brothers, maybe it's hard for you to believe. Why would anyone show such grace and love especially to people who are against them. And that's the wonder of God's grace. That's the wonder of God's love.